if I asked for a show of hands of how many people thought that Cornelius is already saved at this point, I suspect that there would be at least a few of you who would say, oh yeah, definitely so. I mean, how else could he be called a devout man in verse 2? How else could he be said to fear God and to always be praying? I mean, some Christians have a hard time praying two, two or three times a day. You know, here's a guy who's praying all the time. Surely he is saved. And I have to admit, when I first read that section, that was my impulse to believe as well. But uh, before you jump to any conclusions, I would like to give you four reasons why I and many other people believe that he was not saved at this point. If you take a look at chapter 11 and verse 14, this verse is repeating a conversation that the angel had with um, Cornelius. And this is what he says about Peter. He says, Who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved? Now, the first thing I want you to notice about that verse is that it is hearing this message that Peter is going to bring that is the immediate cause of their salvation. He says, Words by which you and all your household will be saved. So these words are not describing a salvation that he already had. Instead, the word of God that is given by Peter is the means toward his salvation. Second, I want you to notice that it doesn't say words by which you were saved, past tense, but it says words by which you will be saved, which is future tense. Now, some people just find it so hard to believe that the person being described in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 10 is not saved that they look at that verse and they scratch their heads and we say, well, we don't know what that means, but it can't mean that they weren't saved. Or they will say, maybe it's describing something that's in the past, but it's not. It's very clearly stated that they were going to be saved after Peter speaks these words to them. And here is the point. If we do not understand the state of this person's soul, I think we're going to miss some very important lessons concerning the importance of the gospel. Third, elsewhere in the book, you have people who are described with almost exactly the same language that is being used here. They're called devout. They're called people who fear God. And yet in those contexts, they clearly are talking about people who do not have salvation. For example, in Acts 2, it describes devout men from every nation gathered together at Pentecost. And Peter tells these devout people, repent, Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Be saved from this perverse generation. Now, if he is calling them to have their sins remitted, that means their sins haven't been remitted yet. If he's calling them to be saved, that means they haven't been saved yet. And yet Acts 2 verse 5 describes these people in these words, devout men from every nation under heaven. And so you can, you can be devout and still not be saved. Now, Acts 13, verse 50 is even more clear. It speaks of devout and prominent Jews who hated the gospel so much that they stirred up persecution against Paul. They stirred up persecution against Paul. So it appears that the word devout means very religious, not necessarily saved. Uh, likewise, the Old and the New Testament speaks of the fear of God coming upon unbelievers, at least for a, a period of time, people who were not saved. They respected God. They feared God. And so the terms here do not necessarily refer to saved people. Fourth, in 
Acts 11, verse 18, when the believers heard about the conversion of Cornelius and his household, it says they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance unto life. Now, their interpretation of the events is that these Gentile believers had been granted repentance without getting circumcised. They had been granted repentance unto life after Peter had preached the gospel. And so in Cornelius, we have a remarkable example of how close people can resemble Christians without being Christians. It highlights characteristics that are often assumed make you a true believer and really do not get to the heart of the gospel. And so we're going to use this passage to highlight the importance of understanding the doctrine of justification by faith alone. For example, many people assume that you must be saved if you believe in God and you're a good person. Uh, This was obviously what the two household servants and the soldier believed uh, in verse 22. When Peter asked them why they came, they said, Well, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel. I mean, think about it. If you knew Cornelius, wouldn't you probably have assumed that he was a Christian? Maybe even assumed, This guy's good elder material. You know, if you'd only get circumcised and join the synagogue. Uh, but he's uh, he's a guy who's a quality guy. And yet this man did not even know the basics of the gospel. This verse indicates that he had a good reputation among the Jews, which meant that it was very hard to find any fault with this gentleman. He certainly was a regular synagogue attendee. That's the meaning of the technical phrase God-fearer in verses 2 and 22. It referred to a Gentile who was not yet converted, but who regularly attended the synagogue, who was seeking to observe uh, God's laws. Verse 1 indicates he was a respected military man. It says, There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. Now, there were various levels of centurion, and the word regiment, the Greek word that's used here, uh, indicates uh, what his level was. And it must have taken about a dozen years for him to climb the ranks uh, to that position. And so the military obviously thought that he was a good military man. And here's a well-rounded guy. Very well-rounded. It's not anybody you'd want to see burning in hell, right? In verse 2, you find out he was a family man. It says that he was one who feared God with all of his household. So he was not so caught up in the pursuit of the American dream that he's neglecting his family. Instead, you find he loved his family and his family loved him. They were devoted one to the other. He, he cared about them. He ministered in their lives And by the fact that they were God-fearers too, he was bringing them to the synagogue regularly. So he took his responsibilities to raise his family very, very well. He was a swell guy, but he was not saved. Verse 7 indicates he passed on his morality to his employees and to his fellow soldiers. Now, you know anything about the military, and especially if you know anything about the Roman military, that is quite something, you know, for him to even be willing to talk about it, let alone to be converting some of his other fellow uh, people to be an observant Jew without going all the way. They were God-fearers, but they were not fully uh, converted yet. It says in in verse 7, when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. And you read later on in the chapter and you recognize they believed exactly the same thing that Cornelius believed. 
He was trying to lead those who were nearest and dearest to his heart to salvation, but he didn't know salvation yet. He didn't understand the gospel. D. James Kennedy, you all know him, uh, he said that was exactly the boat that he was in when he was in the ministry. He had been pastoring for many years. He'd even won some people to Christ, but he didn't realize it through his preaching. And he did not understand the gospel. And he finally had his eyes open when a friend of his was saying, you know, why don't you and I go out and do some evangelism together? And as they went out together and this guy began presenting the gospel, he realized he wasn't even saved. God opened his eyes for the first time to understand the gospel and it revolutionized his ministry, revolutionized his life. And then finally, we can't forget that verse 2 describes him as a generous philanthropist. It says who gave alms generously to the people. I mean, what a model man. And yet, it is not our conformity to an outward standard of society or an outward standard of the church that saves us. It is the finished work of Jesus Christ, trusting Him alone for our salvation. And at this point, He did not do that. Now, many evangelicals, you can read it in their commentaries, many evangelicals cringe at the notion that Cornelius was not saved. Some of them don't quite know what to do with this because they know the Scripture clearly says he was not saved. They cringe at that, and I believe many of them cringe at this notion because they have already departed from the gospel of the Reformation. Uh, They do not understand it. You talk to many pastors and you ask them, what is justification? They cannot give you a clear answer. How do you get saved? They talk about inviting Jesus into your heart or something like that. Their idea of salvation is primarily an experience. I've invited Jesus into my heart or I've fallen in love with Jesus, as one pastor said, or I I just feel different. It's an experience that they're highlighting. And and Rodney pointed to that earlier, you know. And an experience is what people are looking back to, right? To have assurance of their salvation. Whereas for the Reformers, salvation was primarily something that happened outside of us in the courtroom of heaven where God makes a judicial declaration. It's known as justification. And the modern misconception about justification has led many evangelicals to have a much broader ecumenical movement than they really should have. I know at least 50 evangelical pastors in town who believe that anyone who loves Jesus should be treated as a fellow Christian, whether they're Protestant, Romanist, or um, uh, from a cult. Now, don't get me wrong. I do believe, and I know personally, some Roman Catholics who I believe are saved and are justified, but it's because they believe something different than Romanist doctrine. It's because they have believed what they've heard on on the radio or on the TV. They've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they have trusted that their sins have been imputed to the Lord Jesus Christ and Christ's righteousness has been immediately imputed to them. That's not what these evangelical pastors are talking about. They claim that if you can say the Apostles' Creed, and I've heard them over and over say this. We've gotten into a number of arguments about this. They say, if you can say the Apostles' Creed, you're a Christian. I say, now wait a minute. The Apostles' Creed doesn't even deal with salvation. It was written for people who were already saved. Okay, it's not dealing with how to get saved. And so uh, there's a lot of confusion. But anyway, unless you really understand justification by faith, you're going to have a very hard time figuring out why Luke says that Cornelius was not yet saved. 
And you'll probably cringe, as these 50 pastors have, who I've discussed with, if anyone suggests that Mother Teresa was not saved. Now, obviously, only God knows the last moments of a person's life and what they might do, but if Mother Teresa believed her own theology, she was not saved. And yet, she was an incredibly devout person. She appeared like she loved God. Uh, She certainly won the respect of Romanists and Protestants and Hindus for her work. And if you don't know much about her work, it really was an incredible uh, life that she lived. There's all kinds of neat things that, uh, that she did. Uh, she appeared very selfless and sacrificing and very gentle and caring in her work. Uh, she's what the world would call a good woman, a model woman. And even I have a great deal of respect for her as an unsaved woman. Okay? Now, just as one example, one man saw Mother Teresa picking maggots off of a dying man, and uh, the man was just uh, foul in, in terms of the, 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 the odor. It was just overwhelming. And somebody that was watching Mother Teresa gently caring for this person says, man, I wouldn't do that for a million dollars. And she said, neither would I. And her point was she was motivated by something that was quite different. There was something that motivated her to minister to people who, you know, clean their their pussy, maggot-filled wounds, to care for people who were dying of AIDS, to carry people who were dripping with dysentery into hospitals. There was something that motivated her to confront uh, those who were pro-abortion very boldly. For example, President Clinton one time went to a big occasion and wanted to meet with her. She's a big celebrity and reached out his hand to shake her hand. She refused to shake his hand, put her finger on his chest and said, stop killing babies. I mean, you've got to admire a spunkiness like that. I mean, I do. Uh, at another time, uh, she was invited to speak at the United Nations uh, Conference on Women, and she just boldly confronted the agendas that they have, which are pro-abortion, and... Uh, uh, just a very bold woman. And there are many other events like this that have made her a hero both to Romanists as well as to Protestants. And yet, we are not saved by our good works, are we? If you are uncomfortable with the thought that Mother Teresa is burning in hell or that Cornelius was not yet saved, it may be because you have a faulty understanding of what the Gospel is all about. Many evangelicals do. Like I mentioned earlier, their idea of of justification or conversion is inviting Jesus into my heart. Well, I don't see Paul exactly inviting Jesus into his heart. Instead, I see Jesus busting down the gates and declaring himself to be the Lord of Saul's life and uh, of this world, right? But the point is, it's so important to realize that the heart of the gospel is not an experience. It is a belief in something that happens outside of ourselves. Now, we do have many experiences in the Christian life. Every genuinely converted person is going to have experiences. We're not discounting experiences. But that is not the heart of the gospel. And people who make salvation an experience have given up the heart of the gospel. I want you to look at verse 43, and you're going to see the heart of Peter's message. To him, that's to Jesus, to him... All the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Now, that is scandalous to the flesh. That is scandalous to the Jews. You mean I have nothing that I can contribute to the salvation? God says that's right. 
All you do is you believe in something that Christ has accomplished for you. And the book of Acts indicates that even that faith is something you could not have unless God gave it to you as a gift of His grace. It is something totally, totally of God. And so you do not understand justification if you do not realize that you could not be saved if you had even one sin to answer for. See, the word justification or to justify is a legal word. It's the word that a judge would say when he pronounces you not guilty. He would be an unjust judge if God pronounced you not guilty when you are guilty of sins. Even one sin. He cannot proclaim you not guilty if you are guilty. And so, you do not understand justification if you do not understand that we must have our sins imputed to Jesus. That means our sins have to be given to Jesus where He is legally treated as our substitute. He is legally treated as if He has committed every one of the sins that we have committed. And that His righteousness is imputed to us. That means that we are treated as if we have committed all of the righteous deeds that Jesus Christ committed. That is justification. It is a transfer of life. It's an exchange of lives. We lay down our life at the cross of Christ not trusting any of our good works to make us acceptable to God. In fact, the Scripture says we have died to our life. We repent of all of our works and we trust the works of Jesus Christ alone and Christ becomes that exchange. He dies in our place. Why? Because He's our substitute. We live. Why? Because He's our substitute. And I've had people tell me that uh, Mother Teresa was just too good to be lost. It just grates against them. The idea that God could put anybody so good into hell. And it just illustrates how far from the Protestant Reformation the church has fallen. I've even heard of a Reformed minister speak of her as a fellow Christian. One defender of Mother Teresa said that the thought that she is in hell, quote, is obviously a monstrous and unimaginable thing to contemplate, unquote. Well, that person must think that the doctrine of justification by faith is a monstrous and unimaginable thought. Why? Because we get no credit. That's in, in effect what she is saying, this person that I was quoting. And by the way, I don't deny that she was a devout person. I think I've mentioned that before, who feared God. I don't deny that she lived an outstanding life or that she was an outstanding citizen. But I do say that in TV, in radio, in the media, she has publicly denied justification by faith alone. She has denied the gospel of Jesus Christ. And unless she repented of that prior to her death, she is in hell. There is no other conclusion you can reach. And you may be a person who is trusting your own good works in order to make yourself in some way acceptable to God. If that is the case, I urge you to lay your good works down at the feet of Jesus Christ along with your sins because it is a blasphemy against His grace. It is an insult to His sacrifice to say that anything we do could contribute in any way to our salvation. Let's move on to Roman numeral 2. What is confusing to many people is that Cornelius is thought to be a person who was very close to God. In fact, some of these descriptions, some people think, man, are inconsistent with the doctrine of total depravity. Uh, how could they say things like this? And yet they recognize it. Chapter 11 says they were not saved. Let's look at some of the terms. Verse 2 <clears throat> uh, says that he was a devout man. Other translations have pious or religious. 
The Greek term means to be devoted to religious observances or to be faithful in observing religious obligations. It's a very good term. Every Christian should be devout. Ananias is described as a devout Christian. Um, And so, uh, there's nothing wrong with being devout, but chapter 13, verse 50 indicates that very devout and loyal and upright church members can be unsaved and hostile to the gospel. And yet, the Scripture calls them devout. So, do not base the fact that you are devout, a devout Christian, as being the basis for your salvation. Now, if you aren't devout, that may indicate there's problems. But the reverse is not necessarily true. Verse 2 says, He was one who feared God with all his household. Now, every believer should have the fear of God in his soul. No question about that. But yet, the Scripture is quite clear. There are unbelievers who have the fear of God upon them as well. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 29, describes the incredible effect that Jehoshaphat's miraculous victory had upon the nations who were all around about, about them. It says, And the fear of God was on all the kingdoms of those countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And that's repeated over and over again in the Bible. Second Chronicles 17.10, The fear of the Lord fell on all the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah. 1 Samuel 11.7, The fear of the Lord fell on the people. It is quite clear. Unbelievers can have the fear of God driving them. It can govern their behavior. It can make them shape up, as it were. Another astonishing thing about Cornelius is that he prayed to God always. Verse 2. And as I mentioned before, a lot of Christians have real difficulty in the area of being prayer warriors, being involved in prayer. But even that is not an infallible sign because I have known Buddhists who pray hour after hour, uh, you know, their whole lives. And yet they're as far from the gospel as you could get. He received a vision from God in verse 3, but we are not justified by visions, are we? We're not justified by visions. Justification is not an experience. It is a legal declaration of God that happens when by faith we receive the imputed righteousness of Christ. Think of Abimelech. He had a vision in Genesis chapter 20 and God says that he gave the vision and he gave it not only to rescue Sarah, but because he didn't want to kill Abimelech. He was doing Abimelech a favor. And yet there's no indication whatsoever that Abimelech ever becomes a Christian. Um, You can think of Nebuchadnezzar. Years before Nebuchadnezzar got saved, God gave him visions. Did He not? I have known Mormons who have had visions. And they're as far from the Gospel as you could get. I've known Roman Catholics who are hostile to the Gospel and yet they have had visions from God. Now, were there visions from God? You know, I'm skeptical, but who knows? How can you judge unless it contradicts the Scripture? But it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant to me because we are not saved by such experiences. Now, this vision here clearly was from God. The infallible Word of God tells us it was from Him. And yet, chapter 11, verse 14 makes it very clear, Cornelius was not yet saved. That's the point. Now, verse 4 is probably the strongest argument you could get for Cornelius' salvation. And it's the one that I struggled over. As I was uh, preparing this sermon, I was thinking, man, that sure seems inconsistent. It says, when he observed him, He was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. In other words, God was answering his prayers and was respecting his alms. Now, the question is, does God ever hear the prayers of unbelievers? Does he ever 
respect the good works of unbelievers. Are not their righteousnesses called filthy rags? And yes, as far as they're earning salvation, that is absolutely true. But he wasn't saved yet. Okay? None of these good works had saved him. It doesn't mean that we should go out and tell unbelievers, you know, all your righteousnesses are as filthy rags, you might as well sin and enjoy a little bit of life before you burn in hell. Uh, no, he indicates there is a difference between an unbeliever doing bad works and an unbeliever doing good works. He's going to receive less judgment. And in fact, uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, points out not only the judgment equation that's in there, but you're putting yourself under the means of the gospel. Uh, you're putting yourself into a position where God's grace could work upon your heart. And so we should not be thinking it makes no difference there. Um, even though all of our righteousnesses are compared to filthy rags, they are still called righteousnesses. They're just defiled by sin. They're not going to earn us any favors with God. And God on occasion still praises uh, pagan kings for doing the right thing, even though they're not saved. He on occasion answers their prayers. Uh, secondly, it's clear that God has already been drawing Cornelius's heart to himself. And the Puritans spoke of this as the work of preparation. Sometimes God works for years in a person's life, giving them a hatred for their sin, a distaste for their life, a hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It's driving them to Christ. And so it is clear God is doing something different with him. He's already at work in preparing him for salvation. Thirdly, every time a person prays for salvation from sin... It is an unjustified person's prayer that God is answering, is it not? He's unjustified. He's saying, Lord, please justify me. Save me. And so there's at least one prayer, you know, of an unjustified man that God answers. Fourth, it appears that God had already given Cornelius some faith to be seeking him. So he's close to the kingdom like the rich young ruler was, but close is not uh, there yet. Christ said the same thing to the scribe in Mark 12, verse 34. You are not far from the kingdom of God, but close is not enough. And then fifth, it is clear that God answers the prayers of unsaved people when they repent. He sometimes relents of His judgment. Sometimes He prolongs life. For example, it would be hard to think of any king who was more wicked than King Ahab. In 1 Kings 21, God speaks judgment against him, against his nation, against his wife. And in verses 27 through 29, it says this. So it was when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his body and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, See how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. In the days of his son, I will bring the calamity on his house. He answered Ahab's prayer. And so we ought not to take the doctrine of depravity and just level out all humans as if they were equally depraved. There are degrees of depravity. And God still respects the righteous acts of individuals just like He would respect the pagans uh, fulfilling the laws of gravity. Okay? Or <laughs> if He violates the laws of gravity, you know, it's, whether you're a believer or not a believer, uh, it's going to impact you. <clears throat> and then lastly, it appears that the prayers of Cornelius were precisely dealing with his desire for salvation. And these desires that God has placed in his heart are designed to make him hate sin, love righteousness, sense his need of Christ. So I really think it is totally consistent 
uh, chapter 11, chapter 10's description. Now, the reason I bring this up is that some people have based their assurance of their salvation on the fact that God has answered their prayers. That's a dangerous place to base your assurance of salvation on. If you think this is true of you, read Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, and you will see that Jesus says that on Judgment Day, there will be many people who claim that God has answered their prayers with regard to healing and a number of other things, and, and He's going to disown them. He'll say, I never knew you. So, our salvation is not based on that. Verses 5 and 8 indicate that as soon as God commands Cornelius to do something, Cornelius immediately obeys. That's more than could be said of some Christians. But he was not saved yet. You're beginning to get the point that salvation is not based upon any of these things and these other things are not even the means of salvation. Verse 7 indicates that Cornelius was passing on his religion to his family, his work associates. It says, And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. Very unusual thing for not only the Roman soldier to be uh, adopting the Jewish religion, but for him to be passing it on to his household servants. Verse 2 mentions his family. And here's at least one soldier, if not more, who have also come to believe the same thing that he did. I knew of a situation here in Omaha where a person had very successfully passed on the Christian faith to his children, but he later on apostatized. And it's a strange thing how people can look so close to Christianity without ever truly being believers. He was able to pass on the true faith. Finally, verse 22 indicates a degree of holiness or, or at least a degree of outward. I think we should say outward conformity to God's law. He is called just. And it's mysterious how some or all of these things can be true when chapter 11, verses 13 through 14, so clearly and unambiguously says that they were not yet saved. But you know what? That is just to be ignorant of the depth of the deception that our hearts are capable of engaging in. Martin Luther was seen as being incredibly holy by his fellow priests, and they got frustrated with him. He keeps confessing all of these uh, little unknown sins to them that they thought were inconsequential, and they were just telling him, you know, get over it. Martin Luther was just like Cornelius. Just like Cornelius. And yet he too was devoid of salvation, and it was not until God opened Luther's eyes to the message of Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, and to God's glory alone that he was set free from his prison house, and he was given new life and new eyes and new joy and new hope in the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In one moment of time, he was justified. He was regenerated, justified, and given hope. I was at a man's house last Saturday who testified to me that he had attended church quite faithfully for many years, was a deacon in the church, and yet he never understood salvation. One time he listened to the radio and something struck him. He had heard this many times before, but something struck him that put his sins in a whole new light, put God's holiness in a whole new light. He said he fell down before his bed, weeping, crying out to God for salvation. And God had changed his heart, justified him, opened his eyes. He said for the first time, the Scriptures took on a life they never had before. It was a dead letter to him before. But now when he'd read the Scriptures, it gave him joy, it gave him meaning in life, it gave him a new excitement. 
He was a seeker for years, but he was a possessor in an instant. And the Puritans spoke of this over and over again. They knew many people who were seekers like Cornelius, but who one day had their eyes open. They were regenerated. They were uh, justified. And uh, they could see the whole world and the Scriptures in a whole new light. And so the Puritans didn't give up on people like Cornelius. Just as the angel instructed Cornelius to get under the good preaching of the Word, these Puritans would say to a person who was a seeker, get into the preaching of the Word. Read the Bible. Use all of the means of grace. Very, very important. Same was true of John Miller, the pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He grew up in a Christian home, was catechized. He went to seminary. He passed a very rigorous Orthodox uh, you know. Uh, Orthodox Presbyterian Church Presbytery exam. He pastored for many years. He'd even led people to Christ. And yet, himself was never justified until God opened his eyes. And he wrote a book called Repentance in the 20th Century Man to warn people of the counterfeits that our flesh can produce. You see, our flesh is so intent into holding on its own autonomy, it will come up with all kinds of clever counterfeits of the Spirit. But they will always be self-oriented self-centered. The servants in verse 22 are almost saying, hey, Cornelius deserves you to come to our house. He's a good man. Why don't you come to our house? And many times we act in the same way. Perhaps you have felt that God owes you something because you have slaved yourself on His behalf to the bones. Okay, You've gone through all of the requirements for church membership. You've tithed and you've prayed and you've sung. And deep down you feel as if God is not being fair with you. You deserve better. You know, Job felt that way, even though he was a saved person, right? Uh, All the way through the book, he's a saved person. And in the middle of the book, he feels like he deserves better from the Lord. But when he sees God face to face, suddenly he begins to realize he is not worthy of even the least of God's mercies. Isaiah had the same experience. He sees God. He falls down on his face and he realizes how unclean his lips are, that he needs Christ cleansing still. And I want to ask, what about you? Have you been going through the forms of religion? Or do you have a living and a vital faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? In this chapter, Cornelius is brought to the place where he recognizes that religion is not enough. He'd gone through all the forms and was not saved. Sincerity is not enough. You couldn't be more sincere than Cornelius. But as many Christians in the past used to say, the road to hell is paved with Good intentions. Charity is not enough. You could give away everything you own. Be the most generous person in the world and still not be saved. Prayerfulness was not enough to get Cornelius into heaven. And his huge humility in the face of the bigotry of those Jews was not enough to get him into heaven. Now, certainly those things are admirable. They're admirable, but they do not save. And I don't want you to make the mistake that we throw those things out because everything is of grace. Of course not. God honors such things, and as Edwards himself has said, uh, we should encourage even unrighteous people to follow God's loss, of course. But don't let them have the illusion that by that, they are going to earn God's favor. There are three things that resulted in the salvation of Cornelius. First of all, he put himself in the place where he could hear God's Word. Chapter 11, verse 14 again, says about Peter, "...who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved." Now, if he had not gone, if he had not listened to the angel, if he had not gone to listen to Peter, he would not have been saved. Okay? 
that the Scriptures were the powerful means of transforming his heart and his life. Why is it that we read the Bible to our children every day and have them memorize Scripture and bring them to church? It's because we know that the Word of God is powerful and it can change them from the inside out. And we see him obeying the Scriptures here. It's God's tool for bringing people to uh, himself. And any place that God is intending to bring salvation... God brings an intense hunger for the Word of God as well. The second thing that was present was repentance and faith in this gospel that the Scriptures bring. Now, those are two sides of the same coin. Repentance and faith. You cannot separate them. Anytime you have faith, you're going to have repentance. Which means, if you see an unbelie- I mean, a believer who goes through his entire life and he's not repenting, then he doesn't have true faith. It's, uh, they're two sides of the same coin. Calvin said, not only is our life a life of perpetual faith in Jesus Christ, it's a life of perpetual repentance. Why? Because we're never going to be done with the sins that are in our lives. <clears throat> One of the mistakes that people often make is that they put their confidence in their faith rather than in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, They are looking back to a time when they believed to try to get assurance of salvation. And this was definitely a problem that I had for years. I doubted my salvation. And people at uh, the boarding school I was at and other places finally were getting frustrated with me because uh, I was always doubting salvation and always going forward to get saved, you know. And they said, Phil, just write down. I believed on this day, put my faith in Jesus Christ, and I repented of these sins and date it and sign it. And then anytime you doubt your salvation, look back at that document. Well, it didn't help. Because <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the future, I'd look back at that document and I'd think, well, was that a genuine faith that I wrote down there? Did I repent, you know, of all my sins? And finally, one brother really solved the problem. And he says, Phil, your problem is that you're trying to have faith in your faith. You're looking back to an experience and wondering, was that experience genuine faith? And he asked me, Phil, do you trust Jesus Christ for your salvation right now? I said, yes, I do. He says, well, what difference does it make whether you believed back then, you know, a month ago? Because genuine faith is going to continue to cling to the Lord Jesus Christ. And genuine repentance is not going to be preoccupied with uh, trusting in its repentance. No, genuine repentance repents not only of our sins, but any trust we may have in ourselves, including our repentance. Its focus is always on the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, I got it. My focus is to be on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I looked to the Lord. I laid down my sins and my righteousnesses, what one hymn calls my deadly doings. And the reason they're deadly doings is because we tend to put our trust in those things, don't we? So I put even my deadly doings down at the cross and uh, and said, Lord, I know it's only Christ's righteousness that can save me. And I lay these down at the feet of Christ. Finally, Romans says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, confession with the mouth is not adding anything to faith. It's the outward expression of faith, Right? So it's not adding to, it's the outward expression of faith. And it's to not be ashamed of Jesus. Well, this is exactly what Cornelius does in verses 24 through 48. He brings his friends, his associates, his family to witness his confession that Christ alone was his hope and his salvation. 
Okay, he did not hide his faith. Now, we started with the story of Mother Teresa to see if our hearts were focused on her goodness or on Christ's goodness. And initially, I was tempted to give you quotes from her where she denies justification by faith, where she affirms universalism and when she affirms her trust in the merits of Jesus Christ and other things like that. And I thought, no, I'm not even going to go that route. What difference does it make? What if she believed every doctrine perfectly, but she's still trusting in her good works? And I think that's the issue. It's not how doctrinally good we may be. And there are evangelical pastors in this city who would say that there is no need for Cornelius to profess faith because he's already saved. And the reason that I know that is because they have told me it's enough for people to be sincere and to love God. Brothers and sisters, do not neglect the doctrine of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone. Keep focusing your eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of your faith, and then secure in His salvation, secure in what He has provided for you. You can go out and you can begin to love and obey the Scriptures and do all of the things that Cornelius was doing here and to even be able to do it with incredible joy. Why? Because you're secure in Him. You're secure in His salvation. And so, uh, let's uh, go to the Lord and ask that He would make us not only believe the Gospel, but to live it out before uh, other people. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank You and bless You that it is all of grace and not of our works. And that if we have this solid foundation of justification by faith, then our sanctification can take on joy. Because it's not to earn Your favor, but because we have Your favor that we can serve You and love You and please You. I pray, Father, that we would never uh, doubt or compromise this precious doctrine that You revived once again at the time of the Reformation. Bless this, Your people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.